0: The average price of an apartment in Manhattan is now more than $1.2 million, and many sell for much, much more. Good morning. I'm George Boldarky. And this is Cityscape. On this morning's show, we're blowing past the doorman and taking a peek inside of some of New York City's most coveted apartment buildings. What do you get for your millions? Who's the money to buy these places? And how tough are the co-op boards? You're tuned to Cityscape from 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. A new book called High Rise Lowdown takes us inside some of New York's most sought after addresses. The book includes details on what it takes to get past the co-op board and describes the amazing art collections of apartment owners. I recently spoke to authors Denise LaFrac-Calicchio and Catherine Livingston. Denise, Catherine, thanks so much for being here.
1: It's very nice to be here. Thank you so much for having us.
0: Denise, let's start with you. Why did you decide to get involved with a book about New York's A-plus addresses?
1: Real estate is in my blood, and uh, New York real estate is red hot. In fact, it's sizzling, and everybody talks about it. When you go to a dinner or you go to a party and somebody brings up residential real estate, people uh, tune out of other conversations, and they're so interested in the conversation about residential real estate. And we were so fascinated uh, of the architectural history, the design, the social history of all these buildings, And we felt if we were so fascinated and we had all these contacts into this world of real estate, that this would be a good topic to write about.
0: These buildings that we see all along Park Avenue and Fifth Avenue and Central Park West, is it mainly old money in these buildings today or a lot of new money, too? A lot of new money, too. A lot of
1: new hedge fund people, a lot of instant success. And once they have the instant success, they want to express it in where they live.
0: I must say that my jaw literally hit the ground when I read that some of these buildings require you to have at least $125 million in liquid assets just to get in.
1: Yes, right. after I think, you
2: pay for the apartment. <laughs> so that's beyond the price of the apartment, which very often is about $12 million to $20 million. And, of course, the absolute uh, highest uh, apartment in, this, uh, in our story is the one at the top of the uh, Time Warner building, $54 million Uh, a two-story penthouse.
0: And who bought that one?
2: Actually, a a uh, Mexican-born London hedge fund man called David Martinez. He's sort of a mysterious figure, but obviously very successful.
0: How competitive is it to get into these buildings?
2: It's very hard to
1: get into a lot of these buildings. And when Rupert Murdoch bought the Rockefeller apartment, Lawrence Rockefeller's apartment, there were five billionaires who were interested in buying that apartment. But Rupert Murdoch had lived in the building with his second wife already, so the estate knew that he could pass the board. And so he got it. So it shows that all these other billionaires that have plenty of money, more than $125 million over the asking price, couldn't get it. It didn't matter.
0: So money doesn't mean everything. No, no. Because
2: five people wanted it, so no, these are highly amazing. As, as expensive as these are, there are more people today who can amazingly afford these apartments, uh, and so the competition to get in is harder than any club.
0: <laughs> what are these co-op boards looking for? Obviously, it's not just money.
1: No, it's social prestige, occupational prestige. And you have to know the right people, and they have to write letters that they really seem like they know you. They love letters that are handwritten. Uh,
2: They have to come from the right addresses. And, of course, the right address and the – I mean, the the right people depend on the building. Some people would be more impressed with high-profile showbiz people, and others would be totally unimpressed by that. They would want someone who's on the chairman of of the board of a very impressive company – and most of these buildings, they're looking for sort of high, of uh, philanthropy as well, you know, impressive. Uh, for example, Bono is a very interesting character. He did get into the San Remo, one of the uh, Central Park uh, West's most selective uh, boards and most difficult uh, co-op boards, and who actually had uh, nixed Madonna a few years before, but Bono is a great humanitarian, and uh, he had no trouble getting in at all, despite the fact that rock stars usually have a hard time getting into these buildings.
0: Do we know why the San Remo rejected Madonna?
2: Yes, because uh, she—usually, co-op boards
1: do not have to disclose that kind of information— But she had just recently posed for Playboy and Penthouse, and she was about to get married to Sean Penn, who refused to come for an interview, and that's a no-no.
0: I found that fascinating in your book that co-op boards often look down upon designers, designers who make a lot of money.
2: And, and these are actually some of the best dressed, uh, people in the world who live in these buildings who probably spend more money on clothes than anyone on the planet Earth. And yet they have a great discrimination against designers for some reason. They, in the British kind of way, it's a very old fashioned, probably wasp thing, looking at, uh, uh, the, uh, uh fashion designers as almost trade, sort of the tailor who used to come or the seamstress who used to come. It's a very old fashioned attitude about this. Uh, also, there's another thing about designers. Fashion designers tend to redecorate, regut the apartment. Very noisy, major, uh, and, peri- and they're serial redecorators of their apartments. And neighbors don't like all that construction and remodeling going on. It's all very noisy, and we, people under one roof don't like that. Steven Spielberg uh, did the same thing in his building, but. There was so much reaction to it that he, some of the writers and uh, screenwriters in the building who need quiet to do their work and who work at home, he actually hired an office for them uh, somewhere else in another part of town so they could go to an office and stop <laughs> complaining. And he paid for their offices during the construction, which also went on for about six months or more.
0: Gloria Vanderbilt eventually found a home in New York, but it wasn't easy for her either. She was rejected on Manhattan's east side. The River House turned her down. Right. Yes. She sued, didn't she?
2: Yes, she, she did, did sue. And actually, that's one of the worst things to do. They advise you uh, in, in real estate, if you turn down, just be quiet and walk away and find something else. Because very often, you another building will like you. I mean, it's just sort of uh, one of those things. And, uh, but she did sue and actually brought more publicity to the building. They were angrier and angrier. And it, uh, it, it's generally advised not to do that. But she was not the only one. I mean, Diane Keaton, for example, and and Richard Nixon were uh, also rejected by the River House.
0: Richard Nixon was rejected by more than one building. Yes, Yes,
2: actually.
1: The River House is a very publicity-shy building. They don't allow people to come in and have their apartments photographed. They don't allow interviews in the building, um, you know, for magazines or any of these things. So that building, it was the wrong fit for him.
0: What would you say have been the perfect matches? I know that 1045th Avenue welcomed Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, and that seemed like a nice home for her.
2: Bobby Kennedy found that apartment for her because she had to make room for the uh, Lyndon Johnson family at the White House, so it was a fairly fast move, and these buildings are slow to accept anyone, and also he worried about the fact that uh, she would have to have all the... uh, 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 Protection of uh, uh, government protection, and there were kidnapping threats against her children at that time. It was a very scary time for Jackie, so she wanted a very low key, highly protected building. And uh, Bobby helped her get into that building. And they let
1: her get a, have a security guard in the building at all times, and they, the paparazzi was there
0: all the time. Are most of these buildings condos and co-ops, not rentals?
2: Every building in our book are, is a condo or a co-op except for the Chelsea Hotel. However, the Chelsea qualifies because it was, in fact, the first co-op in New York. And but it is a rental today. And what about the Waldorf Towers? Oh yes, and the Waldorf Towers. That's right. The Waldorf Towers. It's a rental.
0: The Chelsea Hotel, of course, has had a long list of interesting characters lived there through the years?
2: Practically everyone in the arts, uh, uh, well, everything went from movie makers to underground movie makers, underground movie stars. Uh, uh, it had a, 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 a sad murder, Sid Vicious, uh, who murdered his girlfriend Nancy. Outrageous activity there. <laughs> and and uh, a wonderful juxtaposition of personalities. For example, the head of the Communist Party lived there all her life uh, in America. The head of the Tommy party in the United States live there? Great creative talents uh, with Mark Twain, uh, practically every writer of uh, Nabokov, Edie Cedric. Oh, and then the pop stars, Edie Sedgwick, Ultraviolet, and uh, Clifford, Eva. Clifford Irving.
0: You spoke to the owner of the Chelsea Hotel for your book. He seemed pretty protective, though, of the tenants who lived there.
2: Absolutely, Mr. Bard. And uh, he, because someday I think he wants to write his own book. And so he was very protective of the Jews. We have to get the story somewhere else because he was very protective of, uh, because there are still, he claims, very creative, quiet people working away at uh, musical masterpieces, art, artwork, and uh, uh, writing novels. Ethan Hawke, for example, writes, his, he's also a writer, not only an actor, he writes, he has a place there.
0: I would think all of these buildings must be pretty protective of their residents. Absolutely. How'd you get inside? How'd you get past the doorman?
1: Well, it's funny because when we came up with the idea, our publisher said, this is ridiculous, you will never get this information. And because of all the people that I knew while working in the real estate business and the friends that I had that lived in these buildings – There was absolutely no problem. I would say that 95% of the people who were asked were extremely helpful. And uh, they gave us all the information we needed and lots of it that we did not print because this book was not meant to be a catty book.
2: People are very, if you become, if you gather them into your... Or a bit of enthusiasm. They're very proud. Most people are very proud of where they live, whether it is a town in or a suburb of St. Louis or uh, Jackson Hole, Wyoming. People are very proud to tell you about the decision why they picked that resort or why they picked that building. And um, they love to show you their collections and what they've... Uh, because this is, in a way, what they have achieved. This yes. is part of their way of showing what they have achieved, and this is a city of full of ambitious people who generation after generation come here and make it big, sometimes from nothing. So they were, the story, our book is full of these great uh, stories of individuals who have a dream and then succeed at it.
0: This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. We'll get back to our discussion with the authors of High Rise Lowdown in just a moment. Some of the most coveted apartment buildings in Manhattan are in the 10021 zip code. The Postal Service has plans to split the Upper East Side neighborhood into three zip codes. I hit the streets this week to find out what residents think about it
3: my name is terry slater and i'm the co-chair of the 78th street block association park lex and i have lived here all of my life some people are angry because they like the 10021 uh, zip code and they just don't want to change Uh, some people are irritated because they will have to change a lot of their business correspondence and print it again i just would like to have more of a justification as a resident as to why this is necessary My name is Gillian Friedman. I live at
2: 188 East 78th Street. I think people who know the area know that it's a terrific area, and I think that a zip code is really um, just a status symbol, like a label on a handbag, and it doesn't matter to me.
1: Hi, my name is Leslie Gore. I live on East 77th Street. Look, I was upset when I had to dial in 212, and then the one before that. And I was living out on the East End when it went from 516 to 631. So I think what's happening now is I'm sort of getting used to change I don't happen to own my apartment, but I would be significantly concerned if I did. 2-2 and 2-1 have been, for years, the two great zip codes in New York, and I guess we're going to have to uh, make 75 live up to that.
2: My name is Dallas Dalton, and I live at 350 East 79th. Apparently a lot of people believe that there's some prestige attached to this particular zip code. I'm kind of ambivalent about it. I'm used to it. It'll be kind of hard for me to get the you know, start changing my zip code when I write it down. But I guess I'll just have to adapt to it. I guess everyone will have to.
0: Upper East Side residents who live in the 10021 zip code for now. The neighborhood will be split into three zip codes come July. Now back to our interview with Denise LaFrac Calicchio and Catherine Livingston, authors of High Rise Low Down. What are some of the more luxurious things that you've found in the buildings themselves? Amenities, as they call them.
2: I think the apartments themselves are sort of masterpieces. Many of these buildings were built in the 20s by uh, two top architects, uh, James Carpenter, uh, quickly followed by uh, Rosario Candela, who came here as a young boy uh, from Sicily. His father was a plasterer, but he went to Columbia School of Architecture, hardly speaking English, and understood almost early on Because there was a resistance to apartment living. Before these apartments were built, people had huge mansions, family mansions, uh, with 40, 50 rooms on Fifth Avenue. So there was a little resistance to these buildings. But these two men essentially devised uh, uh, the idea of how upper-class Americans wanted to live when they lived in boxes on top of each other, which until then apartment living was sort of associated with Lower East Side tenements and they just created these beautiful luxurious apartments just the kind of thing that then was in the 30s movies became popularized all over America uh, in those great uh, screwball comedies that many of them take place in beautiful New York apartments and which sort of made Urban living, sort of fun. City life, fun. And for the rest of the world, it sort of gave an idea of what New York life was about.
0: And it's interesting, too, because many of these folks were moving into these buildings during the Depression. So not everyone was down and out.
1: There was a big discrepancy between the people that were down and out and all the other people who could continue to live in these very luxurious buildings.
2: Well, this is particularly was reflected at the River House, which went up in uh, uh, 1930, the absolute uh, most depressing time. And it went up at a site that was sort of a slum. There were slaughterhouses, factories, uh, um all around it and on 52nd Street near the East River. It was not a fashionable place in those days, so it was a very daring thing to build. However, it is a beautiful, huge city block and They designed it to be sort of a fortress of luxury, and this was all captured in a movie with uh, Humphrey Bogart and uh, Sylvia Sidney called *Dead End*. Uh, And if you remember that film, it's a very poignant. the The little the Dead End kids are constantly annoying the doorman, and they look up with great wonderment at the shining tower full of uh, beautiful people sitting on their terraces, the rich, rich, the very rich and the very poor. It's a great, it was actually a protest film.
0: The Dakota, I found this very interesting in your book, at one time denied homosexuals. Yes.
1: Well, sometimes uh, there was a there was in the 80s there was a homosexual gay couple there that did not abide by the rules of the building, and so at one point they were not popular in the building. But I'm happy to say that that doesn't exist anymore. There are many homosexual people living there now.
0: The Dakota, most people know as the home of John Lennon and Yoko Ono, of course, John Lennon gunned down outside of that building.
2: Exactly. Uh, uh, The Dakota is uh, one of the really mystical buildings in New York, full of mystery and full of uh, its sort of an enigma of a building, partially because of its own sort of storybook look on the outside. But John Lennon and then Rosemary's Baby was filmed there, which is one of the scariest movies of all time, and it was about devil worship. But also the Singer family, who... uh, uh, the Singer sewing machine family and the lawyer for them, who who uh, made enormous amounts of money, were behind building the Dakotas. And uh, Mr. Singer had 26 illegitimate ch- children, many of whom became counts and countesses and princesses once this enormous fortune was made. Yeah. And he was an itinerant worker.
1: He was for like 40 years. And then he was working on fixing a sewing machine. I think it was Leveret and Blodgett or a name like that. And he saw it and he said, oh, I can make this much better. So within 11 hours, he had, like, fixed it and made a sketch of it. And within a day or two or 12 days or whatever, he had made a new sewing machine, and that's how it became the Singer sewing machine. And you probably wonder why the building got the name Dakota. Well, the reason it got the name Dakota was because it was so far north that it reminded people of the Indian, uh, the Dakota Indian territories, and that's how it got its name. Uh,
0: Wasn't Lauren Bacall, the actress, very involved with trying to block the sale of the Dakota at one point? Yes. Yes,
1: Because she had just (laughs) renovated her apartment and she was a little nervous about about what was going to happen, and she did, and it was successful at that point.
2: I think Dakota has had an unbelievable procession of, uh, of legendary characters, not only John Lennon, but uh, uh, Lauren Bacall, Boris Karloff, uh, Leonard Bernstein, L- Rudolf Nureyev, Cesar Sieppe, the uh, Metropolitan Opera singer, and um, uh, Roberta Flack who lives there with eight of her dogs. <laughs> and uh, Rex Reed. Uh, Rex Reed, the writer. Uh, Judy Garland, Judy Holliday. The names are beyond. Uh, Rosemary Clooney, it's, it's, uh, uh, the building has uh, uh, layers and layers of history. Yeah, and there was a funny story about Boris Karloff, who
1: played Frankenstein because when Halloween came, all the children were so scared of him, and he would leave all his Halloween candy out, and nobody would come by. So when, he, when Halloween was over, all the candy was still there. They were so afraid of him.
0: What does a building do when they allow someone in, and then later they find out this person is a suspected criminal? I'm talking about Klaus von Bülow, who lived at 965th Avenue.
2: Well, actually, it's a very interesting story because in all the <laughs> sterling <laughs> buildings uh, who have gone through so much to figure out who should get in and who should not get in, there are several cases of people who have gone to prison, and it is very interesting how neighbors react to that. And uh, a contrast to, uh, to Klaus von Bülow is uh, Al Taubman, uh, who was involved in the Christie's uh, Sotheby's Auction House price-fixing deal and went to prison for six months. Uh, His neighbors were very supportive and uh, very nice. Klaus von Bülow, who in the end was cleared of his wife's murder, but he went through two trials. He was convicted the first time, and um, there was a film made about this with uh, Jeremy Irons, but he uh, made a terrible mistake of bringing in uh, his mistress into um, the apartment while this trial was going on. And this was really frowned upon. And he was a man who was actually a very grand I mean, individual who had pictures of the king of uh, Denmark, his Danish by birth, and this life-size portraits all over the apartment. Everything was museum-quality piece. I mean, here was a couple who basically had everything, but they... Screwed it up. And uh, the, uh, and he was head of the board at one time. He actually could, at one time decided who would get into the building, who would not. But once these trials came on, he, his neighbors pretty much shunned him and let him know that he was not welcome. He was a proud enough man to realize it, that he would probably be thrown out and he left before that actually could happen. And he moved to London.
0: New York right now is in the midst of a building boom, many new luxury high-rises going up. Same kind of demand, same kind of issues involved with co-op boards? Well,
1: I think a lot of them are now condos, so the process is different. And unless the building buys the apartment back, then the person can get into the building. So a lot of these very well-to-do, successful people who don't want to expose themselves to these co-op boards that sometimes are very unreasonable, can buy luxurious apartments, can have all the amenities, can have a great address, a great apartment, a great penthouse, and not have to go through that.
0: So the new construction is creating new opportunities for people.
2: Yes. Absolutely. And I think a a perfect example of this is the Time Warner Center, which is uh, there are people there from all over America. People have made money in Minneapolis, Snowbovilles, or vineyards in California, or uh, hotels in Las Vegas, as well as foreigners who have been who particularly do not like to disclose everything to total strangers. It's sort of unheard of in some European countries or the Far East that you're going to open up, be naked, literally financially, for the board to see. So they love a building like uh, of Time Warner, which is represents the idea also it's it's a city you know you, you what you have here is uh 360 degrees of this Vibrantly alive, 24-hour city, very densely surrounding you because you're in Midtown. You're really at the absolute center, the epicenter of New York, which is where Columbus, which is Columbus Circle, is.
1: Yeah, and it's five-star living there with um, all kinds of private health clubs, and there's um, a jazz center there with many different fabulous rooms in it, and there's.
2: Four four star restaurants there. The security there is straight out of James Bond, or even beyond James Bond—a twenty first century uh, security uh, with uh, no not keys but cards from one going from one side of the building. It's a great control tower, control room in the bowels of the building. So people love this uh, security, and uh, and yet this glass a uh, uh, panoramic view of the beautiful city all around.
0: The Time Warner Center, one of many buildings in your book, which is called High Rise Low Down, Who's Who and What's What in New York's Most Coveted Apartment Houses. Catherine Livingston, thank you so much. Thank you. Denise LaFrac Calicchio, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Catherine Livingston and Denise LaFrac Calicchio are the authors of High Rise Low Down. It's published by Barricade Books. Well, we're almost at the end of this week's cityscape. But before we go, we thought, hey, we've been listening to all this talk about high-end Manhattan real estate. What's it like to be in one of these apartments? And what exactly do you get for your millions? We got in touch with Elaine Clayman, an agent at Brown Harris Stevens. She's one of their busiest brokers, logging 50 to $60 million in annual sales. Elaine agreed to give us a tour of a two-bedroom apartment that just went on the market at 45 Sutton Place in Midtown East.
3: My name is Elaine Klayman. I am a senior vice president at Brown-Harris Stevens, have been with Brown-Harris since 1999. This is one of the amazing homes on Sutton Place. Uh, As you can see, there's an amazingly large entry foyer that sort of um, speaks volumes about what's going to happen after you leave this this foyer. So why don't we go to the right here, where you have a double-sized living room, which is very, very unique. It's a corner room. When it's sunny, the, the sun is pouring in from the northwest windows. It's in excellent condition. A lot of wall space for paintings, as you can see. Sutton Place is kind of an oasis in Manhattan. It's this quiet area right in the heart of the city. What's also unique in this building is that it has a gym and it has a private roof terrace exclusively used by the residents. And most Sutton Place apartments or buildings don't have that. And um, there's a garage in the building. In the Sutton area, a one-bedroom right now would sell for about 900000 Then when you get into two bedrooms, you're probably at around $1.4 million, a million five for a two-bedroom apartment today. And a three-bedroom in Sutton, where you're mostly talking about co-ops as opposed to condos, your average three-bedroom is going to be anywhere between... 1819 and 22. This apartment is around $2 million. Why don't we go off to the right here? There's um, two entrances to the kitchen. Uh, This home has been configured from the original floor plan. So you have a very, um, for New York, unique eat-in kitchen with the window Um, Now we can walk through the apartment, and you're going to see two master bedrooms. I think what's very important for any buyer to do is to empty an apartment. I mean, they have lovely furniture. It's elegant. It's traditional. If somebody came in and they had more modern taste, we would have to say, look at the white walls, empty the room, and imagine your own furniture here. People buy three ways. People buy visually, orally, kinesthetically. This apartment has it all. Visually, it's, it's got beautiful space. It's ex- orally, it's extremely quiet. You're on Sutton Place. And kinesthetically, there's a feeling of openness and airiness and light. The building affects price. The neighborhood affects price. The floor height affects price. Co-ops are are a little less per square foot than condominiums, and they are requiring you to have more post-purchase liquidity. So co-ops are much more difficult, obviously, to get into than a condominium. So it's usually people who are a little bit, quote-unquote, more grown-up, so to speak. I think one of the things is that we ask them to dress and not to be insulted by us telling them this, but like they're going for an IBM interview, to be very conservative, to not do things like hold hands at an interview. I've seen people rejected because they were holding hands at an interview. We like to tell them that somebody who's interviewing them may come in, in sweats, and perspiring because they just ran in Central Park. And yes, they have to come dressed up, but the interviewers do not have to come dressed up. Um, Most of them will, but they shouldn't be insulted by that. Those folks are already in the building. They're trying to get in the building.
0: That's Elaine Clayman of Brown-Harris-Stevens showing us an apartment at the 45 Sutton Place South Co-op. That brings us to the close of this week's Cityscape. Thanks for joining us, and thanks again to the authors of High Rise Low Down for chatting with us about Manhattan's finest apartments. Interested in making a bid on some of the property you heard about on today's show? Better start saving. Hey, we'll help. Past shows of Cityscape are available absolutely free at WFUV.org, where you can also podcast the show. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Jody Avergan. Have a great weekend.